So we're in the Gospel of John, and this Gospel is so full of symbolism that every story we encounter, there's usually a central character in the story. So in the case of the passage I just read to you, it's the Samaritan woman. Last week, we saw Mary, the mother of Jesus, bidding Jesus to provide additional wine for the wedding in Cana. And then we saw a follow-up story in chapter 3 of Jesus interacting with a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. And when we look at these characters, they are more than historical characters. They are individuals that are trying to communicate something through the symbolism that is attached to them. For example, when John talks to Nicodemus and says, you must be born again, Nicodemus, the literalist, says, well, how can I crawl back into my mother's womb? Today, when we see Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman, what we find is that Jesus will say, I will give you living water, and she, in her literalness, says, well, how can you do that? You don't even have a bucket, right? So there's a setup here in the Gospel of John. Many of the characters that are told to us in these stories don't know how to step into the moment of opportunity. And so what we have looked at the past couple of weeks is stepping into the mystic means stepping into the moment. So I try to come up with a definition. I tried to lay out for you two weeks ago that there are several lights along the shore that we look to when we are in this voyage to try to find meaning and purpose and love. And now as we are looking at some of these characters, what we are finding is that for us, mysticism is not somehow contemplating your navel. Mysticism is a word that means we step into the mysterious moments of life. Life has a lot of mystery to it, a lot of things we don't understand, but we step into those moments, whether they are encounters with other people, such as Jesus is having with these individuals, or individual experiences that we may have that kind of change the direction of our life in some way, or even events that stand out in our mind that made a profound impact upon us. And when we step into those moments, they create memories, sometimes they create meaning for us, and sometimes they create movement, the changes in us to be able to do things maybe we never had the courage to do, or maybe we never really thought much about, but now we look at life differently, and as a result of that, we do those things that transcend our time on earth. That is, it becomes part of the legacy we leave behind. So there's a lot in that definition that I put together, but... In these encounters that Jesus is having with individuals, it's all trying to do one thing, and we're told what that is at the end of the gospel. Many things were written in this book, and there were many things that are not written in this book. But all of the things that are written here is so that you might believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, 
and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the writer of the Gospel of John wants us to grab a hold of life and not let go of it and to understand that the fullness of life is found in the person of Christ. So today what we're going to do is join the Samaritan woman on this voyage. This voyage that takes her toward Jesus and she in this mystical moment doesn't understand Jesus completely, does she? Uh, she's an individual that has a little bit of snark to her as well, right? Where are you going to get water? How are you going to get water? You don't even have a bucket. Or how about, why are you asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? So there's all kinds of little snarky things that are in this story. And Jesus paves the way for her to step into the mystic and be able to understand a little bit more about her destiny in this life. We said last week that Mary represents kind of Judaism that is on the move. That because God is working in new and marvelous ways, but you have to be willing to understand when the old is used up and the new is awaiting. Nicodemus is showing us that religion alone can entrap us from seeing God give birth to new life within us. And so we have to kind of rethink the things that maybe we've held tightly to. And Nicodemus, this wooden literalist, cannot understand that God is going to move in a new way in the world. A lot of times, the longer we are exposed to religion, the more wooden we become, the less flexible we are. And sometimes with that comes certain prejudice. I like what uh, Reverend Josh Scott from Grace Point Church down in Asheville says. He says, when we see theology as a rigid and fixed system of belief, it becomes something to be believed in and defended. But when we see theology as alive, a living and growing tradition, it invites our curiosity and participation. In other words, theology is important, but it can be sort of like a rope that keeps us tied to the dock, right? Rather than setting us free and setting the sails so that we can journey to where God is taking this world. So today we come to this story of a Samaritan woman, and we can't forget that these stories are linked together. So this is kind of how it works. You have Mary, the mother of Jesus, that leads to the cleansing of the temple, then into the story of Nicodemus, and then this story of the woman at the well. And when you begin to see the movement in the Gospel of John, there's contrasts as well. So if we were to put Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman side by side, there's a huge contrast. So Nicodemus is named, we're told his name, he's Jewish, he's privileged, he's male, he's of a high status in society, he's part of the ruling elite, but he's non-perceptive. He comes to Jesus in the dark, he's an individual that doesn't want to be found out before he's sure he wants to take the step, in contrast to the Samaritan woman. We're not given her name. She obviously is not Jewish. I'll tell you a little bit more in a second about what it means to be a Samaritan. And then 
she is a commoner. She is an individual that fetches her own water and cooks her own meal. And she's the individual that is kind of the servant to other people. She is female from a lower status in life. She's part of a village in Samaria. Sychar is the name of this village. And she is an individual, though. Is, she grows in her perception. She is an individual that says, how are you, Jesus, a Jew, talking to me, a woman from Samaria? And all of a sudden we see that she becomes a bearer of the light. She's not hiding in darkness anymore. She goes and tells other people in the village, the very village that might have rejected her, that might have, uh, you know, pigeonholed her as an immoral woman of some sort. And so the contrast is very important to keep in mind here between Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. Now, to understand this story, you have to understand that it's a story that is not really a story about morality, nor is it a story about an evangelical mission where Jesus is going to get her saved. You have to understand the backdrop to the Jews and Samaritans to understand the point of this story. You know, when I went through seminary, and I've heard this story preached on a number of different times over the years. And usually the story was used to say, um, Jesus is setting this woman straight because she has a checkered past. She had five husbands, and the man she's living with now is not her husband. Uh, it's been used in that regard. Um, other times... Uh, it's been used as kind of a model for evangelism, how Jesus kind of built a bridge to this woman and got behind her defenses and, and, uh, and showed her that he is the Messiah. I think these approaches miss the point because it disregards the symbolism that's in the story and the historical background behind it. Jesus, as we see at the beginning of chapter 4, is on the move. He's moving from Judea back up to the region of Galilee. And in order to get there, he has to go through an area called Samaria. Uh, let me go forward for a second. If you look at this uh, map here, you'll see down here there is Jerusalem. And up here is the Sea of Galilee. And that's primarily where Jesus' earthly ministry takes place, is up in the northern section around the Sea of Galilee. And right here in the middle is Samaria, and there's not a real good way to get up to the north without going through Samaria. So Jews who felt that Samaritans were uh, people that um, were rejected, people that were immoral, people that were not pure in their Jewishness, that they were kind of half-breeds, they didn't want to have anything to do with them. And so they would find alternate routes to go up to uh, Galilee. And most of them would take this red route, if you will, where they would cross the Jordan River, go up on the east side of the Jordan River, cross back over. 
Sometimes other people would go way out of their way along the coastline to kind of avoid uh, that whole territory. But Jesus went right up the middle, this white line here. He goes right up the middle, and as he does so, he comes to a small little village called Sychar. And by then, it's noon, and he sits down, and he's thirsty. And uh, as he sits there, this woman comes out, and she is a woman that is not supposed to be there during that time of the day. If you lived in that area of the world, you know you go get your water early in the morning, right? It's cooler. Why is she coming out when the sun is at high noon? We'll come back to that in a moment. You know, when we talk about Samaritans, we need to have a little bit of backdrop to this. Remember I said the Gospel of John is the last Gospel that is written. It's written probably about 90, 95 AD, which means that it is probably one of the very last books that made it into the New Testament canon. We are already told about a Samaritan ministry in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. And Acts is written before John's Gospel, and it seems to me that the legitimacy of Jesus sending out his disciples even into the area of Samaria is symbolized in this story. The Samaritan ministry that we're told about in Acts chapter 8 seems to find its justification and its legitimacy in this story of this woman's encounter with Jesus. So keep that in the back of your mind. Who are the Samaritans? What on earth is going on? You have to have a little bit of understanding that in the Old Testament, when Solomon was the king over a unified nation, he taxed the people heavily. And he he did so so that he could build the temple and his palace and so forth. And when when he died, his son came to the throne and the people said, you need to cut us a break. We're being taxed too much. And his son said to the people and to the leaders, you think my dad was bad in taxing you? His is just a small fraction of what I'm going to tax you. And so the nation split in two, ten tribes to the north, and they are designated as the nation of Israel, and two tribes to the south are designated as the nation of Judah. Well, as time goes along in the Old Testament, um, there's these powers that arise, Assyria and Egypt, and they want control of the land. And these ten tribes to the north are taken into captivity by the Assyrian Empire. And as they are taken into captivity, the king of Assyria decides to do something. He's going to water down the population. And here's what he did. You're going to see two lines here on this map. The first line is a red line where the people that have been defeated by the Assyrian Empire, they are taken off to the east into Assyria. And as they they migrate there, forced migration there, the king 
we're told in 2 Kings chapter 17, decides he's going to send some of the Assyrians to settle back into the area of Samaria. So there's a plan of action here. The king is going to bring the Jewish people to his empire, and he's going to send various people into the area of Israel. And the people that are left behind are what are going to do what? They're going to intermingle. They're going to intermarry. And as they intermarry, they are no longer pure Jewish race. Now they become kind of a mixed race, a half race. You say, well, what does this have to do with anything? Second Kings chapter 17 tells us that the king of Assyria chose five different nations that he was going to send back to the area of Israel. Ding, 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 the symbolism. You have had five husbands. Five husbands. What John is showing us is that this people had become so intermingled that they lost their identity as pure Jewish covenant people, and because of that, they had been rejected by those who remained down here in Jerusalem, who remained the pure, chosen, elect people in the eyes of God. Now, hang on with me here, because this is where this story becomes very powerful. So now you have a group of people in Samaria here, and you have the people down in Judah, Jerusalem here, and they are neighboring people, and they never got along, constant conflict, they are people that practice similar religions because these Samaritans who, even though they assimilated much of the other religions of those that uh, came into their territory, yet they maintained a certain amount of Judaism. And what we find taking place is that even though they have similar territory and they have a similar religion, there's this active hatred for each other. The Jews hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans hated the Jews and they developed a prejudice. And they are individuals that uh, did not recognize the legitimacy of the other people. Now does that sound familiar to you? Does that sound like the Jews and the Palestinians right now? This is the same story. It's the same story that's going on thousands and thousands of years ago. So with that in mind, here we find a merging of cultures and religions that water down the pure race. And um, here comes this woman. She's a Samaritan. Uh, scholars think that she had been ostracized in some way because she comes to the well by herself. She comes alone with a water jar, and as she does, she is an individual that encounters Jesus. So this encounter now is in this moment. What is Jesus going to do? Here is Jesus, a rabbi. Here is Jesus, the one who has uh, completely obeyed the Torah law. Here is an individual you might recognize as a pure uh, uh, Jewish religious uh, devotee, right? And he sits down by this well, and this woman 
comes and he asks for a drink of water. And normally the Jews would avoid this woman. The Jews would reject her on a couple of different accounts. She's a commoner, she's a villager, she's a Samaritan, and she is immoral, okay, supposedly, right? So Jesus engages in this conversation with her, and he tells her about living water. And she doesn't get it at first. Well, give me some of this living water, you know, then I won't have to trudge out to the well and get water, and I can just have it all the time. And then Jesus says, but if you knew the water that I give you, it will well up within you eternal life. And so this woman says, I want that. He touches her in a very powerful way, and she recognizes she needs something more than what she has. But he says this, go call your husband and come back. We don't know if this woman is single or married. What we do know is that the five husbands represent the type of history that had gone on between the Jews and the Samaritans. And this symbolism is such that Jesus is putting his finger on it. It's sort of like a cut that he presses down on and she feels the pain of that because this has been going on for a long, long period of time. She's an individual that literally could have been married five times. I don't think so. I think this is all a symbolism to give to us this picture that Jesus is going to reach out even to a group of people that have been thoroughly despised by the Jewish people, discounted, disregarded. And so Jesus, as he is talking to her, is going to tell her about what is possible in God's work, this new way of looking at each other, this new way of working things in the world. Yeah, traditional voices sexualize this woman, but if we understand how the writer talks about this encounter, it's very important. If you know the history of your Old Testament at all, the well is where Abraham sent out his servant to find a wife for his son Isaac. The well seemed to be a place this mystical place where the right woman comes along and God provides this woman for the patriarchs of the nation. Abraham sends his servant out, we're told in Genesis chapter 24, and he tells the servant, hey, if there's a woman that is there at the well, um, if, she says, can I water your animals for you. She's the one. Okay? So that's kind of an interesting story even in, a, in and of itself, right? And so the servant goes out and sure enough, there's this woman that comes and then offers to water the animals. And so the servant takes her back to Abraham and she becomes the wife of Isaac. What's fascinating in that whole story is that this 
kind of ancient romantic comedy in the book of Genesis is telling us that Abraham, who at least initially told his servant, listen, go find a wife for my son, but do not, don't you dare, bring back a Canaanite woman. You can read that in the Genesis story. Now we find this story here. And this woman is just as much looked down upon as the Canaanite woman that is forbidden. But Jesus reaches out to her, and I think what he is saying is even this Samaritan woman is a suitable, a suitable disciple of mine. And that's exactly what she does. She runs back into town, and she brings people out to meet Jesus. So what is this living water then? The offer of living water in this conversation, I think, is something that is very important. The living water, I think, represents a new way of looking at other people, a new way of living in harmony and in peace with other people. Remember in the story, she says, you Jews say that you need to worship in Jer Jerusalem where, hey, we've been around this well that was given to us by our fathers, Jacob, a long time. So we worship here, you worship there. And Jesus says, there's coming a time when you're not going to worship either here nor in Jerusalem. You're going to worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, a lot of times preachers and commentators will try to work this out to say, okay, what does it mean to worship God in spirit and truth? And that's where one of those theological boxes I think we get into. You connect that idea to the living water. Here's what I think it means. To the woman's hostile question as to why he, a Jew, would ask her, a Samaritan, for water, he responds with this invitation of living water, which becomes a metaphor for the loving spirit that can hold humanity together no matter how much animosity has taken place between two groups. The living water, in many respects, is when two groups of people who have hated each other for years and years and years and years come to the realization that we are human beings, that we share this planet, that we are individuals that all have the same needs, that we are individuals that have the same hopes, that we're individuals that cannot control the entire planet just for our group and no, no one else. You see, I think this story of the Samaritan woman is an exact type of story that we need when we think about the conflict that is going on between the Ukrainians and the Russians, between the Palestinians and the Jews, and for other groups who want to discount and disregard and write off to kill and hate other groups of people because they are not us. I think Jesus is responding to her in this invitation, telling her that humanity needs more than the material because the material only satisfies temporarily. But if we can dig deep and find the living water that's found in God and found in Christ, it will bubble up inside of us. 
as an opportunity to live out eternal life. So he tells her, go call your husband. Well, symbolism would suggest, go recall your history. Go recall how this happened, where two groups of people merged together. And as they merged together, what happens is two groups began hating one another. If Mary is a symbol of Judaism that needs to progress from old wine to new wine, the Samaritan woman is a symbol of the Samaritans that really do need to tap into living water and be the first to set aside the animosities between groups that hate each other. The symbolism of John's gospel here, I think, is telling us that the only way that we will experience the type of refreshment that can satisfy our soul is when we begin looking at the other through the lens of God's love, through the lens of mercy, and in grace. So these five husbands represents the living water as a way of drawing all people beyond human barriers. And you only see these symbols if you connect these stories together, okay? If you sit it as an isolated story, you'll think that Jesus is simply trying to evangelize a woman. But if you see the history, if you see the symbolism, and you see the interconnection between the stories, then I think what you find is that the Samaritan woman becomes a herald of a brand new revelation of hope for humanity. Jesus openly challenges and breaks two boundaries in the text. The boundary between chosen people and the boundary between the sexes. You're Samaritan, I shouldn't be talking to you. You're a woman, I shouldn't be talking to you. And he begins to break down these barriers. And I think the writer of John summons all people, and in particular, the Church of Christ, to stop shaping its life according to society's definition of who is acceptable and who is not. This story is a story that opens our eyes to see what is being offered by way of new realities versus old realities. So the point of the story is Jesus isn't talking about literal water. He's talking about a symbol. And yet many times people do not see the beauty of what Jesus is saying. In our world, many people are trying to quench their thirst, seeking it in a variety of different ways, whether it's money or power, material things, the perfect body or the right vacation. But these things are only temporary. These things only last a little bit. Jesus is saying that within you, within me, is an eternal spirit, this spring of water that can flow with peace and love and joy and quench our thirst because he says here, the Messiah, that's me. He, the woman says, when Messiah comes, he will proclaim all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. This story is critical to this moment in our history in the world. The war crimes that are being done around the world in the name of religion is something that God hates. The living water is available to all who are willing to drink of it. The living water is available to you and to me. 
Is there potential for the human race? There is. If we see that Jesus is the one that can provide the deep down quench for water that we long for. Samaritan woman has to lay aside her long-held hostilities. And she does. And she runs back to the village, and it is there she tells her villagers, perhaps the very ones that sent her out to the well at noon because they rejected her. They are the ones that are told about Jesus, and they come. And when they come, they hear Jesus. And as they listen to Jesus, they believe on his word. I love the very last verse of this paragraph. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard it for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. Our job as followers of Christ is to build bridges and not walls, right? Our job is to love all people, regardless of who they are and where they're from, to recognize that God's love usually is only felt when that love has some skin on it, right? Through someone else. And so if we can do a better job at that, our church, the church in general, and religions around the world, then I think what John is doing is showing us how Jesus' work in the world advances. He tells the disciples in this very passage, the harvest is ready. This harvest, so the disciples come back, right? And they're astonished that he is talking to this woman. And Jesus says to them, hey, the harvest is ready. My food is to do the will of the one who sent me and complete his work. I think that's our call as followers of Christ too. Our food is to do the will of him who sent us into the world to complete his work. We talked a lot about in our Beatitude series about the different qualities, including being a peacemaker. And so we gather into this place to renew our spirit and be sent out. So I want to close with a reading. There is a a guy, he lives in Wyoming of all places. He's a professional writer and he does a lot of, um, he does a lot of very uh, symbolic writings. His name is John Rodell, if you want to look him up. But he wrote this piece called You, the Unbreakable Water. He says, it says here, so me, John writing, it's me. Hey, God. God says, hey, John. I'm about to break. God says, why do you think that is? Because life just keeps getting harder. God says, then you need to become softer. Me, huh? God says, here's the thing. Glass is hard, but it can shatter easily when dropped. Rock is hard, but it can be broken quickly with a drill. Gold is hard, but it can be melted in a blazing fire. Don't be so hard that you break down so easily. Be soft like wet clay in the hands of a potter. Be soft like river water in the summer. Be soft like the breeze through a row of tall pines. 
All of those things survive no matter what happens to them. They endure because they haven't built their existence out of hard materials, but soft with other people. Don't break them with your words and don't let them break you with theirs. Be soft with yourself. Your heart is more cotton than iron. Your soul is wrapped in the softest of fabrics for a reason. The softer you become, the more you understand how precious all life is. Be more of cotton than you are of concrete. Love isn't cold granted, granite. Love is shapeless. Love is like ocean water gently passing through your toes. In a world where hardness of diamonds helps determine its worth, don't become one yourself. Become so soft that nothing can break you. Some pretty powerful words when you think about that. So stand with me and we'll close our time together. And as we gather in Jesus' name, we look to him as Messiah, as the one who is fully, as he is gathering us together, may he grant us his peace. Join me in prayer, please. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you today and thank you for the privilege of these stories. These stories that have more meaning than just the facts. It's these stories that allow us to look deep into our own heart and to hear the words of Christ who bids us to look again into the eyes of other people, into their circumstances, and listen to their stories. It calls upon us, Lord God, not to write them off or send them away or to dismiss them, but to somehow see they too are part of your perfect plan. A plan of reconciliation, a plan of reunion, a plan of flourishing. And so, Lord, today, help us to remember this story. And help us to remember the large barriers that are still in this world. And help us to be people that somehow don't throw stones but invite others to the table, the table of mercy and grace. We're thankful, very thankful, that we have met Christ, but help our religion not to become so narrow and so defensive and so obstinate that we can't see that you are working in powerful and in mystical ways, really, around us and in our world. So thank you again for this day in which you have made. We will rejoice and we will be glad in it. And all God's people join me in saying amen. amen. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks so much.